Okay. What's your earliest memory of somebody who was good at life? Oh, probably um, my grandfather, actually, who was a larger-than-life individual. He was about six foot five, weighed 16, 17 stone. He was a big chap, a really big chap. And when you're a little girl, um, he was very imposing. And I remember that... Uh, he used to have a house in Spain, which was very exotic yeah. when I was growing up in Rutland, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> no Rutland? One. Rutland is actually a county. It's the smallest county in the UK. Oh. Famous for not having a city or a McDonald's. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I'm so going to keep it that way. It. So it's very, very, yeah. there's not much there apart from um, arable farms and a few cows and things like that. Um, but we grew up there and um, I remember my grandfather coming in and he'd been in Spain for a a long period of time and he came back with and he had seven grandchildren he came back with seven Walkmans and we were really little at the time and the fact that he had a Walkman was the most impressive thing ever and I thought you must be a gazillionaire because he not only bought one <laughs> you bought seven for all of his grandchildren wow and did you have tapes ready to play no we had to we had to record uh, Top of Pops off the radio Amazing. onto tapes so that we could play and them take your Walkman. time turn. and yeah 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 absolutely absolutely so yeah so I remember just thinking you must be so super successful that you could afford to buy each of us a Walkman. Yeah. That that's, that's success. That was your first, yeah. 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 Did, how was he, did he also kind of convey a sense of happiness and contentment as well? Like yeah. in terms of he was good at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he, you shouldn't say this probably, but you've got four grandparents if you're lucky when yeah. you're born. You have a favourite. Everyone, every grandchild has a favourite. And he was my favourite. And because uh, he was just larger than life. And um, he had seven grandchildren. We were seven dwarves, and we always had it. All each of us had a name, and I was happy. And oh, I was, that's good. <laughs> I was happy. There was a dopey in there. Yeah, and there was a dope, there was there was yeah yeah there was a dopey in there. Uh, and my sister is the converse of me. Was grumpy, <laughs> unsurprisingly. And um, and he always made me so happy because he called me happy. We just bounced off each other. Oh. Um, so he was my favourite grandparent, and as quite often is the case in these circumstances, the first to die. So oh, he died when no. I was just before I went to university, actually. And I hadn't realised that he was poorly. And he was the first first one to go. It really hit me. Isn't that interesting how the memory of him has then lasted since, you know, from university to now? Yeah. Is it still very vivid in your mind, like yeah. the character? Yeah, because but I think because he was he was he was so big yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't just big in his in his personality, yeah. but he was he was he was big in his stature and yeah. he was you know, he was just, he was just very he was a very memorable man. Do you associate kind of big people now with kind of safety and friendliness because of that? Friendliness, not so much necessarily, <laughs> but I think for safety. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Uh, but I'm quite tall for a woman anyway. Um, and I think if you were looking for somebody to kind of look after you, I would find somebody bigger, than, you know, who, who was physically bigger than me to provide that safety. Now. Really? Yeah. That's funny. I had a um, some pet... Uh, Close family. My dad was six four, and mm. and they, you know, as a kid, they're like a mountain to climb, right? Yeah. If you're on their back and mucking about and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. How has your perception of success and um, you know happiness and contentment changed over the years? Hugely. So when I was growing up, you know, my sister and I never wanted for anything, but we were a very working class family. No one in my family had been to university before. Um, and my parents struggled for money mm. the whole time. Um, 
you know, we could only afford to heat one room, not two rooms. And um, my mother used to tell me stories about how she would... Tra- so my, my father always went shooting for pheasants and pigeons and stuff like that. And she used to trade with my auntie pigeons for mince or chicken because she couldn't afford to buy it in the supermarket. Wow. So she did have the stuff that my dad would shoot, but she wouldn't, couldn't afford to go to the supermarket. Yeah. Um, and I also remember walking around with her at the supermarket with a calculator... So we'd have £50 to spend or however much it was. And once we got reached that limit, then we couldn't spend anything else. Was and that then, your job? That was my job. And you'd, you'd always panic when you got to the checkout that yeah. actually if I hadn't calculated it correctly, it'd be really embarrassing yeah. because we'd have to go and give food back. And we did have to give food back sometimes because we couldn't afford to buy it. Yeah. And so because I think of the upbringing that I had, my parents always associated success with money. Yeah. You know, you, you you can't live a life like this. You need to be successful. You need to have money. You need to not worry about money. Yeah. And so it was from a very early, it was like, I remember watching LA Law when I was like 10 or 11. It was very glamorous. It's probably before your time, but a very glamorous American sort of soap about, you know, how wonderful it was to be, you know, in legal practice in America. Yeah. So I decided I was going to be a lawyer at the age of 10. Uh, and that's what I did. You know, and that, that's what it, because, because if you were, successful you had money if you had money you were, if you had money you were happy you were happy that was it was i'm going to just flick on to um shame and because you said about embarrassment and mm. i remember being um on the stairs with my mum and dad i must have been under 7 years old and they were fighting about money i remember my dad mm. slammed the door and left and me and my sister took out 50p's that we mm. had i think my mum burst into tears and we mm. said here you go mum if you need some mm. money there and she was like no 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 and all the rest of it but i remember that being a an early seed in my mind of um a lack of money or um having stress about money, being a massive exploder of shame and embarrassment in me. And, I, and later on in life, it's become a habit of just having to work. It's, you know, and not working is associated very closely with not having a role in society or, or being a bit, you know, yeah, just not feeling good for me. And it's something I can't now kind of turn off. And my wife has it a bit as well. She's always worked. And I wonder how is that correlate? Are you, is it something you're aware of? Is it something that you've thought about and it isn't relevant to you, but... Is shame at the core of some of the things that drive you? No. I was never embarrassed about not having any money because I didn't know that I, we didn't have any money or it wasn't, it just wasn't something that I even registered, I don't think. I can remember very vividly when we went up to secondary school, there was a girl, so we, we went into a very small primary school and then we were going to a secondary school into a slightly bigger village. We were mixing with other people that I met before. And I remember going up to secondary school with a girl and her saying to me, you mustn't tell anybody that I live in a council house. Who lives in a council house? That she lives in a council ah, house. Right. And I thought, what's a council house? What, yeah. what, what are you talking about? Why would I tell anybody where you live or what? You know, I had, and she, she, she was the same age as me. We were in the same year, but she carried this yeah. issue around with her yeah. I mean I didn't live in a council house but I I, I I'd never even distinguished between my house and her house Completely. never made a difference yeah. difference between the two but she was absolutely adamant that I shouldn't tell anyone that she lived in a council house and I remember going to school starting school at secondary school thinking I mustn't tell anyone thinking that's a weird thing it just didn't register with me at all and when did you did you see that then play out of a uh, in school people distinguish between individuals based upon their I guess they're so sure. That no, I don't think I ever did. Status. I think it was probably her her anxiety. It was her anxiety, yeah. Yeah, her anxiety more than anybody else. I don't know because I wasn't her, so I don't know whether she was ever victimised. But I said it was certainly never anything that I was conscious of. No. no. 
It's curious, isn't it, how people, how factions start to be drawn up at that age, at, at that certain early schools. Age, yeah. They start to categorize people, things yeah, like that. Yeah. Have you have you had a, have you ever categorized somebody and later in life thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that. The the world's a bit broader than that. Yes. Yes. Um, I always joke rather flippantly that um, if there was a God, if I believed there was a God, <laughs> yeah. he deliberately gave me autistic children and an <laughs> autistic husband because before I had children and certainly before the children were diagnosed, I had very clear views on how you should raise children and how children should behave and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Very much kind of along the ways that I was brought up, you know, you've seen and not heard, you know, perfect table manners, yeah. you know, you do what you're told, you don't answer back, sure. you just respect you know, your just, elders, you just, yeah, yeah, be quiet. Just, just <laughs> yeah. you know, just behave. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I struggle so much with my children is because they don't react like that, that they, they, they can't operate on that basis. Yeah. Um, and so I struggled very much with the, well, this is what I do. This is what I've always done. I'm telling you to do this. Just do it. Sure. Go to bed now. Clean your teeth now. Get dressed now. And I think learning more about autism and the way that children, in particular, because they're not self-aware enough at that a very young age, behave in the way that they do has made me very much more accepting of pretty much everyone. Yeah. You know, and, and I very much firmly, I firmly believe now that children aren't born bad or good completely yeah children are a function of their environment whereas yeah. the old me was you know well that's a bad child or that's a bad parent or that's a bad environment i think it's children are just develop in the way that they have to given their ambient yeah. surroundings but there is some things kind of genetically at the core that set them off with a certain in a certain kind of direction right as in there are some some certain attributes they would have from their genes of how they express themselves or how they're expressed in the world through their genes Isn't you mean right? autistic people no not necessarily no. autistic i just mean you know some some kids uh, have a high proclivity to you know if they're around people who don't help them or recognise what some of their problems might be uh, or some of the inconsistencies might be with what society regards as normal, um, then it just sets them off on, you know, on a path of, you know, not fulfilling what yeah, they could be. Absolutely. And just not being under understood. Understood, And so, exactly, and so yeah. reacting to their environment rather than adapting within it, I think. Yeah. So what was that, how did that change kind of occur for you and what was the period of time it took for you to you know, um, go through I think Alex um, was started struggling as soon as he started school, so from the age of four, yeah, which was six years ago, six and a half years ago now. And he was very disruptive in class, and he didn't want to sit on the mat. He didn't want to line up. He didn't want to go swimming. He didn't want to go to an assembly. He didn't, you know, it, would, it was a struggle every single day yeah. to get him to school. And I was working in London and I live 100 miles away. And so the teacher would phone me up probably once or twice a week and say, Alex is on the climbing frame. Can you come and pick him up? Not really. That's two and a half hours away from me to Gosh, come and get him. you're 100 miles away. Wow. Uh, yeah, man. and I still live 100 miles away, yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, and it was like, well, you know, you, I'm still working in London. We're yeah. same conversation that we were having last week. I can't just come and pick him up. Yeah. And then I realised that, through a long process, realised that he wasn't just being difficult, that he was genuinely struggling at school and desperately, desperately unhappy. And when you have children that are unhappy, 
there's a saying that you're only ever as happy as your unhappiest child. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. And it's so true because when you see your children so distressed, you yeah. know that it's not them just being naughty. You know that that's them in a period of, of turmoil. Yeah. You can you can go with it or you can fight against it. And probably from the ages of four to eight, I tried to normalise my children. Yeah. You know, they just need they just need to know. They just need to learn. They just need to get, get in line and behave. Did no one bring, like, there was no messenger of, ah, oh, this could be something else at play here. There was no one like that. Yes, but they didn't know what it was. And okay. um, and actually, the, 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 the knowledge around neurodiversity has increased. I can't even tell you how much from those early days, six, six and a half years ago. So six and a half years ago, if you thought your child was autistic at the age of four, you couldn't actually get them diagnosed until they were seven. Right. You just couldn't. Yeah. No one would even look at you. Now you can get your child diagnosed from the age of four so they've begun to realize that it you know people don't grow out of it which is kind of what i was told oh well you know he might just grow out this is might just be a phase yeah. just just wait and see they thought he wasn't exhibited properly until seven so it couldn't be yes. tested yes. That, was, that was it yes okay. yes now they've changed their minds and so children as young as two and a half three four get diagnosed now yeah. and as soon as you it's not the silver bullet because once you have a diagnosis, it doesn't mean you go, oh, okay, well, fine, brilliant, that's all sorted out now. But at least it helps you identify what you're what you're dealing with, yeah. rather than the unknown, which is where I was. How was it? Was that like as an experience emotionally? Oh well, I had a nervous breakdown. The lack of sleep. Alex was when you when you're autistic, you don't autism is. You have an, a, a, what's called a comorbid condition alongside autism, so it's never just autism on its own. So you can have ADHD, acute anxiety disorder, OCD, so they have another condition. Alex's comorbid condition was acute anxiety disorder, which meant that he would never allow himself to fall asleep because if he fell asleep, he was out of control. So he would do everything within his power to keep awake. Wow. And he used to sleep for between 45 minutes and a maximum three hours at one point um and so you go into that you're exhausted you're stressed you're depressed you're anxious and you can't function properly you can't make decisions you can't make decisions you're just you're just living day to day just kind of getting through the day as much as possible and i think um it was seeing alex deteriorate i was deteriorating seeing the impact that it was having on the other members of our family as well just builds into just a great big crescendo of I can't cope with this anymore. How do you deal with work? Um, actually, work was my salvation. Was it? Yeah, because it you, was... you got you were engaging with people, right? Yeah, well, it was, you can just leave it for for a short, short while. You can be. You a can person. just be who you are. Yeah, and you have to manage guilt, and yeah. particularly the mother's guilt. And I've talked to, and I know that sounds a very um, sexist thing to say, and I, but I've talked to lots of people about this, is well, that parents, yeah. typically men, don't feel the same level of guilt when they leave their children to go to work because the expectation is that the man goes out to work. Yeah. Society would definitely enable that. Yes. If you would say to one guy on the street, I'm a really tough time, blah, blah, go, oh, you know, don't worry. <laughs> There's an element of it's not completely your fault, you know, their, their mum should be there, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I'm not sure when that changes or if it will ever change, because I'm not sure how much of it is society and how much of it is inherent maternal feeling. Yeah. Um, well, it suits you, know, um, you very well that you feel like that because you will pr- protect your kid and they will go on to propagate. And it's a genetic thing yeah. that really works well. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, society should be, should be able to bring itself up, you would hope, 
over time to bridge that kind of gap and treat people as equal human beings, regardless of how our genetics brought us into being. But there always will be that at the core. And there will always be people who probably think like that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Marriage a man, woman's a woman. <laughs> but also but you carry that around yourself as well, regardless Completely, of what yeah. everyone else is in, in society is saying or thinking. It's how you feel. Do you have to unthink your way out of that then? Can you rationalise that feeling away? Yeah, I do now. I do now, absolutely. I know that me going to work makes me a better mother. Yeah. Because I had a year off, um, three years ago, off whilst I was going through my breakdown. And I was at home with the children the whole time and yeah. it did not make me a better mother. No. I, I, did, I didn't have an, a release or an outlet. And also what happens when you work is, certainly I do anyway, is the time that I'm at home with the children, I make sure it's quality time. Yeah. So we do stuff. Yeah. We go out, we do drawing, we play games, whatever. When you're at home all the time, you can always find stuff to do. Yeah. That's more interesting than playing games with your children or, you know, yeah. just, or, or, you know, just, you don't have that same quality time. And a lot of my friends who are commendably, in my opinion, stay at home mothers say they never play with their children. Because there's always something to be done. Administrative. Admin, housework, just life needs to be done. Whereas if you work, you focus all your attention on the time that you're with the children. So I do it now. So I go home and I play board games with the children when I get home at quarter to seven until quarter to eight. Whereas I'm pretty sure if I was at home all day, I wouldn't spend an hour a day playing board games with them. Yeah. Uh, No, I mean, I don't have kids, but I can observe that and see there's a logic. I think also if you're... If you're out there engaging with the world, you know, you're learning, you're testing your brain and your ability every day, yeah. and you bring that back to them, and it shows us kind of confidence of, listen, I know what's going on out there, this is important, or listen, that isn't important, actually, I'm yeah. micromanaging you on something that I, you know, is a deficit in me, because I've only got you guys to look at all day long. But um, that's interesting that you, you found a way to rationalise out of that, but do you still... F- feel that kind of a guilt guilt of the do you look back at the whole experience that you've had so far not that everything's ever over and think I'm really pleased I went through that change I, I can only see positives out the back I know and I can put to bed all the negatives yes absolutely yeah um it was a step change in the way that I lead my life going through that hmm. and um it puts into perspective Everything. So you asked earlier about what's your, you know, what the metrics for success in your life. Well, yeah. When I was growing up, you know, success was successful career and money and all the rest of things. And now it, there is only one word and it's happiness. That's it. That's success. It's happiness. happiness how you find for, your happiness yeah. is there are different variations on how you get there. Yeah. Who it is, but that's, that's what everyone should be striving for. Yeah. And that happiness is already bought into your family as well. So your your partner, your extended family, your kids directly, their happiness is also bound up in that. Yes, you can't, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't be happy if they were not happy and I'm sure they couldn't be happy if I was not happy. Yeah. Um, you And you feed off each other as well. Positive energy, you absolutely feed it off yeah. each other. So if someone's on the floor, everybody goes down. So um, we have a big mantra in the house that I don't mind how successful they are academically or not they they need to behave you know properly but the most important thing for me for the children when they go to school is kindness yeah so we have a sign up above our door which says be kind always 
When you walk through the house? When you walk through the house, yeah. <laughs> I have T-shirts with it on. And, um, and I ask the children every evening what they've done to be kind. That's that so good. Because that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And um, empathy, I'm going to make it sweeping generalisation here, but empathy isn't something that necessarily comes naturally for autistic people. Right. Um, so you have to teach kindness. Yeah. Um, so we try and teach kindness in the house. So one example is that we live in a very small rural community. A lot of older people live around us. And a lot of older people that live around us that don't see people for days on end. Yeah, yeah. So about two years ago, I decided with the boys to start making a cake on a Sunday. And we'd go and deliver the cake to the old people. And the first time, we made, first time we made it, the boys were like, if they want a cake, they can make their own cake. <laughs> if they want a cake, why don't they go to Waitrose? Or, you know, why, why should we be doing this? And the first time we made the cake, went to deliver it, it was the most painful. You know, it's, oh, why have we got to go and do this? Oh, I don't want to speak to them all. They're weird. They live there. And they didn't understand why it was their responsibility to do it or what, what they could possibly gain yeah. from going to deliver. Making a cake that they could see that they wanted to eat and then going to give it away. I mean, it's torture for a child. Yeah. But actually seeing... <laughs> hey, look, it's a marvellous cake that you've just made. You can't have any of it. Yeah. You're going to give it to people you don't know and they're never going to say thank you. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's torture for them. Yeah. But now when we do it, they actively ask to make the cake, to go and deliver it, because they see the happiness yeah. that they bring to people. Yeah. So you can teach teach it yeah absolutely. it's something that is, it can be taught and and more than anything else that i want to teach them i want to teach them to be kind yeah why is that so important to them when you're not around them what do you mean when i'm not around if them? you uh, after you when you if you know if you're let's say you're gone from the earth all right and they need this skill set why is that important they have it because i think selfishly from a selfish point of view it can it makes you a better person and can bring you happiness that you can't achieve from anywhere else. So earning money or being successful or being lonely and not happy is not, yeah. that's not a successful life. Yeah. Well, what, I mean, it, it feels very, I mean, we're in the centre of kind of capitalism in London right now talking about it. <laughs> and we're actually just in, on the edge of Shoreditch as well, the creative kind of half inverted commons as well. So what is it that's so unique about um, that payback of being kind that you can't be attained through money? Money's quite an ad- abstract concept. Money buys you stuff. Yeah. It can buy you stuff. It can't buy you contentment or happiness. Or, or connection. Or, or connection or a feeling of worth or community or family. Mm. It can't buy you any of those things. Yeah. Kindness is at the core of so many key skills and characteristics and morals and guiding values and stuff like that. I think, you know, without it, without kindness, I don't think you function properly as a, as a member of society. Yeah. It is a gift that gives twice, isn't it? You know, I feel that. And I, I actually feel this sense, I always forget this, like... My wife's a very, she's that driving force in my life where she will say, come on, we've got to do this. It's like a duty, a family duty type thing. Because I'd probably stay in my house without seeing anyone ever. (laughs) Just me and my wife hanging out is like contentment for me. But she makes me go and do family things. And as soon as I'm back, she's like, you loved that. You thrived. It was a really great fun. You loved all the people there. Why do you kick up such a fuss? You know, up front. And I think it's, I'm not, you know, there's nothing better about me. I still have those same uh, traits, but I don't see a lot of it outside. It's not a popular 
it, it is on, in the world of kind of like betterment and self-help and things like that, but it's not something that's traded with pleasure in society as, you know, this is really valuable to everyone. Do you not think? It's not something that you see a lot of people backing. I don't know whether I look at through the world through rose-tinted glasses, um, but I do think we're at a tipping point in society yeah. where there is a there is a cultural shift happening. I mean, if you, even if you just look at the election, you know, the, the, where we are with the election coming around the corner. Not necessarily who you vote for, because for the last 45 years, or no, well, my voting life, which isn't 45 years, by the way, um, <laughs> my voting life, you, you've, everyone's always voted, all of my friends have voted the same way and haven't ever really questioned it. You, you were brought into a family that voted Tory or you voted Labour, that's the way you voted. You don't need, need to even think about it. This election is the first election yeah. that I can remember where people are actually questioning yeah. the way they vote yeah. and they are asking to see the manifestos of the parties yeah. and looking at them and thinking, are these, are these, is this party representative of my values? Yeah. And you can see that even in the, the increased number of people that registered to vote this year. Yeah. You know, in, in London yeah. alone, it's like 330,000, whatever it is. Is it because we've got 330,000 people new from last year that were just suddenly registered to vote? Or is it because people are now registering to vote because they care more and they care more because they're not assuming that the result's going to be the same as it always has been in their constituency or whatever? You know, the, the people are genuinely interested in pursuing their values through work, through their political persuasion, through the activities that they're engaged in, through the way that they behave. Yeah. I think there is a significant shift happening within our culture. Do you, do you think that's come about because of a lack of trust in people, uh, in power? Yes, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. I mean, particularly, I mean, p- politician, it's, I mean, that's nothing new. No one's ever trusted a politician. It's, I mean, that, I don't think that's anything significant. That is true, but there's, there's, sen- there's a sense now of we've never trusted them, but the power they wield is now so valuable and impacting our lives so much that it's taking the pee. Do you know what I mean? It's like people are like, okay, this is enough's enough. This is insane. It, yeah, it is. But if you took that to the next level, and this is something that I don't understand, and it's the same happening in the States as well. If people are thinking enough is enough, let's do something about it. Yeah. How have we ended up with two political leaders yeah. that most people don't identify with either of them? I think because the majority of the people in the countries they represent were not not being represented well and also not being educated and in some cases being misinformed and, and abused, you know, through, um, you know, false marketing and messaging and things like that. So they definitely aren't being thought about with policies, but, you know, that they've now been sold a message of, you know, this person's now looking after. It's just an intelligent way of like, who's, what's the, how does the, the majority feel? And I remember, you know, so we're in Essex, but we w- both work in London and, when you look at how people voted, and you just see, you know, for the, let's say just for the referendum, you know, of, of Brexit, you know, the Brexit thing, and you just see the volume of people who are like, right, you don't represent me, Bishop doesn't speak for me, let's get out of Europe. They didn't understand any of the... It's like, yeah, of course, we're in this kind of bubble in, Lon- in London, assuming, you know, 
But to put it, to put it another way, I'm absolutely amazed that we haven't seen the emergence of, a, you know, a more centralist party. Yeah. Um, you know, more, more balanced party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in a similar way to this success that Macron saw in France. Yeah. I mean, obviously his success has waned since his election, but I, I, I'm kind of, I'm still baffled by the fact you've got Tories or Labour, sure. and um, we, everyone really wants Lib Dem to be this centralist party, but it's really not. Mm. And so I was like, well, surely there must be somebody out there that yeah. could represent the views of, you know, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And the same in the states. How is it only Hillary? Yeah. Or Trump? How is there not another person in the whole of the states that could be more representative? Of? Well, there's like a Bernie, the Bernie Sanders type thing. He seems to be, you know. But it's um, if if they've got the right views, they feel incapable, and the people with the you know, the forthright views are also the ones that serve themselves and their mm. mates quite well. It's a sad state of affairs. You you it would be nice if there was. You kind of want somebody who doesn't want to be a politician yes. to actually create a new version of politics. Yes through maybe philosophy and, you know, talking about the health and well-being of people. We talked just before we started recording about, you know, the attitude to drugs broadly, how it's just, well, I think it's just crazy that people are in prison for taking drugs when they should take a step further and go back to those root causes. Mm. Um, You know, God knows what it's like to have a kid who, you know, goes that direction. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophet. But it's a bit like what you're saying, you know, if you don't intermediate and and get involved and help and protect and and kind of um, bridge that gap, then people can be spun off into all these different directions just Mm. through just a a slightly bad start in life as Mm. well. Maybe this is where it needs to go to. People say that the capitulation will then bring about a new sense of the, you know, maybe tech might be involved in it as well. (laughs) (laughs) So how is that, um, where where do you kind of find yourself now in terms of the experience you've been on, looking back on um, the choices you've made in your life? Are there things you look back on and think... I shouldn't have gone in that direction. Is there anything you look back on? Or, or from, a, from a career perspective, no, I don't. I, well, generally, I try not to regret anything because I think you you are a function of your life experience. It's your result of your life experiences, and um, it hopefully, certainly, my life experiences hopefully made me a better, more rounded person. Could there have been an easier way? Probably. So, you know, I watched LA Law. I decided I was going to be a lawyer. I did my law degree. I did my LPC. I did all of those things. But actually, it's not really for me. You know, so I wasted a lot of time and energy and stress and exam time doing things that ultimately I never actually, uh, uh, you know, with a discipline that I've never practiced. But similarly, how many people do practice what they read at university? Not very many. And the skills that I learned from training to be a lawyer are invaluable skills to put into the business context anyway so I don't regret that I don't regret moving into finance I enjoy it Um, I love my job I love the work I do I love the people I meet Um, I'm very fortunate and I'm client facing so I interact with clients and the general public and also I work with a bunch of very very bright people so I'm always challenged I'm always interested I'm always curious I've been very fortunate. 
What could the industry do a bit better on that note? Because I know you like the industry and I do. I like the people in it yeah. a lot. And actually, the reason I start this podcast is it started from client meetings and chats and, and actually interviews and then realising there's so much more behind people than just their resumes. Yeah. Um, and it becomes kind of addictive to like learn and become curious about people's worldviews. Um, how, what do you think the industry needs to change in terms of the human um, aspect? I was talking to somebody about this actually just before I came to meet you. But I think, again, if you think that our industry is just a very small part of the bigger, the broader society, and we think that society is at a tipping point in the way that we change, yeah. our industry is too. And I was speaking to a woman just at lunchtime today who's very kind of, disenchanted with our industry and just you know I've like I've done 10 15 years I'm done I've had my baby I'm out I said don't do that you know don't do that you've done the hard graph you know you've done 15 years in 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 what's been a difficult climate particularly for working mothers yeah um don't give up now if you go then we can't you know we can't change stuff yeah we need you you have a responsibility to, to, to be representative you know but I'm very heavily involved with the diversity project, which I think you know, which is an industry-wide organisation which looks to improve the diversity of our industry to make it more representative of the people that we serve, so our, our client base. Can I ask you directly, why is that important? Why is that? So that people can identify with us, so that they can trust us. So going back to your point about trust earlier, people don't, Joe Public doesn't trust politicians. Yeah. Politicians in a survey that was done four years ago rank more trustworthy than asset managers. Oh, they're more trustworthy. Yeah. We are bottom of the pile. We are below investment bankers. Oh. <laughs> we are, we are Ponsgar. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, then, then you question, well, actually, how does the man on the street know the difference between an investment banker and an asset manager? I definitely put that question to them. But yeah. And the thing, but the reason is they don't understand what investment banks do. Sure, they know what asset managers do because we run their pensions and we run their ISAs. Yeah. So actually, they might not they have don't a view engage investment with banks, no. but they do have a view on asset managers. Of course, yeah. And we are the bottom of the pile. And banks are high, like retail banks. Yep. Yep. Gosh. I okay. know. So we have work to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. The public doesn't trust us. And having just been through the summer that we've been through mm. with the... Woodford. Woodford scandal. You know, you think you're getting somewhere and totally. then you just slide straight back down to the yeah. bottom again. And one of the reasons why the public don't trust asset managers is because they don't identify with us as an industry because we don't look or sound like them. You know, it's they just need to hear a salary of over, you know a million or hedge fund manager. And the world of even hedge funds and main market funds is just completely different culturally and, and uh, practically yeah. and governance-wise as well. But yeah, yeah I, I agree. There's lots of um, cloudy information, right? There, and the, well, there's a lack of information to yeah. start with. It's been very opaque for a lot of years whether that's around fees or transactions costs or actual actually what is the performance like and how are you benchmarking us. Yeah. But also the people that they see. Yeah. They, they, don't, they don't know who, who these people are that manage their money or what they look like, but they're yeah. pretty sure they don't look like them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so one of, the, one of the reasons why I'm so heavily involved in, in the diversity project is not just so that we can identify with the public so that, they can those who can increase the, the levels of trust there, but also for the purposes of cognitive diversity. Yeah. So there's been, I mean, it's 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 been proven so many times now that cognitively diverse teams outperform non 
cognitively diverse teams. In what measurements? Um, Decision making. Yeah. Decision making, um, innovation, creativity. If you get... You can see that in this industry. Yeah, well, the lack of, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Um, And you, you know, you you give, you know, problem solving anything, any, any metric on which you can decide whether a team or group of individuals has been successful or not. Yeah. If you have a cognitively diverse group. Yeah. They will give you better outcomes. Yeah. And so you say, okay, well, that's fine. We want to have a cognitively diverse group. How do we achieve that? Well, actually, a lot of the metrics that we use are quite blunt tools. So it's like... Well, Man, woman, black, white. Yeah. Okay, so if we get a black woman or, a, you know, someone from the LGBT community or someone from the neurodivergent community, yeah. does that mean that we've got a cognitively diverse team? Yeah. Not necessarily, but in the absence of everyone doing a psychometric test yeah. before you go into an interview and then having a look at your group and saying, oh, actually, we missed a cheese and my Briggs or a Belbin, you know, we, 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 we're missing a shaper or an innovator or whatever. Yeah. Oh, look, you're an innovator. Let's put you in the team. Yeah. You have to use these blunt metrics to try and achieve that kind of group. Um, and hopefully we'll get to a point where we're more sophisticated than that. So yeah. you can get, avoid positive discrimination in any of these categories. Yeah. But at the moment, it's better than nothing. Right. Isn't there some um, kind of equity to be achieved here where you have to address the deficit and in doing so, like someone said the other day, it feels like to 50-year-old white men that um, their privilege is being taken away. Yep. Well, actually it is because yep. it's been um, in their favour for X amount of years. So it's going to feel like that because it is that. We are we are addressing that and you have to do that to get to a state of equity. It's not about treating everyone equal from now. You've got to also do a reparation. You have, and it's really, it, and I've, I've been, was saying for a long time, I don't believe in positive discrimination. As a woman, I'm allowed to say I don't believe in positive discrimination. As a man, you can't say that. Um, but I was talking <laughs> to somebody, and he said, well, I grew up in South Africa. Yeah. You have to believe in positive discrimination to get to a point of equilibrium. Yeah. And then you can start from an even playing field. Yeah, yeah. So it is going to be a painful journey for people yeah. until we get to that point. Yeah. But once we're there, yeah, we can hopefully start appointing the best people for the job. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of search firms that phone me up always asking, do you know names of any women who you know for this role? Yeah. I'm like, God. Got any gals? Yeah, yeah. You know, it is a bit (laughs) like that. Oh, who's your friends? Do they want a job over here? Oh, they don't really do that, but let's see if we can put them in anyway, you know. And, oh, look, they're autistic as well. Excellent. Let's tick two boxes off and they can definitely have the job. I got a client literally say... Do you have, and she, they said, they laughed. And when it was a woman saying this to me in America, and she said, if you had a black lesbian, that would be perfect. That'd be great. Yeah. And I mean, what is that going to, what, what exactly will that change directly? Yeah. And also, there's, there's a massive, um, people always forget this about the implementation. Like, there's loads of marketing, there's loads of engagement. And what about the actual implementation? Yeah. Justin Onakusi at Elgin yeah, talks about yeah. this. He said, I'm hiring a whole bunch of people, and we're, we're being, really uh, balanced on who we hire in, but then I've now got to get these people to work together. And if you've got 15 people from, I don't know, Eton or Cambridge, and then one person from, you know, Tower Hamlets, then when they go to lunch, there's a natural (laughs) ingratiation we need to also help them through as well. It's like, you do need to, uh, he didn't say this necessarily, but you do need to, I think, amp up that and and really ram it home to everybody. Like, be aware of all these things that you're, um, you're lucky to have. And it's going to feel a little bit, you know, like we're all it's against you. It's painful and it's clunky it, yeah. and it's not easy. Yeah. But I think it ultimately will be 
for the benefit of society as a whole if, yeah. if we can all do this yeah um it's just it's just painful getting there i something just talking about how you wear your experience so openly do you think it's important to encourage others that there it's a and it's an overused term safe environment but that there is a safe environment in a corporation to speak your truth and to actually say I'm, i i feel I, did, I acted inappropriately or guilty and i've been through this change and i'm here now and i can t- kind of tell my story yeah absolutely i think i think as important as um diversity metrics for an organization is the um recognition of role models yeah throughout the organization who are championing a specific cause issue um at varying levels of seniority as well yeah so you anyone with an organization needs to be able to identify with somebody who is in a similar situation and feel that that is their safe space yeah so even if they're struggling you know to use your example of going down to the pub with a whole guys load of guys that have been to eaten yeah that's gonna be difficult but if they have somebody you know within an organization who they can identify with and they can feel in a safe space to talk to their problems that they can understand the issues of living in tower hamlets working with a bunch of people who've been to oxbridge yeah they can have that chat then that will help empower them yeah i think role models have been it's been an underplayed role in organizations yeah. for many years but i think now organizations are beginning to see the benefits of championing different individuals at different levels yeah so as a support network. What do you think when they... I've just got to ask you this question as soon as we've got you. I'll, I'll never this opportunity. Um, when you see... Um, there, there's a couple of networks of women in the city. Mm-hmm. And um, Bev Shah was invited. And she said, Ben, come with me. And I said, just a quick question. How many men are going? Just out of interest. She went, that is the problem, Ben, which is why I invited uh, you. Yeah. It's 100 women in the room yeah. talking about how men should treat them differently. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Justin talks about that when they have people from different backgrounds, um, you know, talk about black and things. Yeah. It just depresses me when you see a room full of just the same types of people that need help and, and you know, support. And they're talking, not into an echo chamber necessarily, but it's also the people around them that have put up the barricades and created this environment. They need their hearts and minds changed, right? You can only achieve the inclusive element of yeah. the DNI once you get everybody on board with that, yeah. and with whatever kind of demographic you're looking at. So, a whole load of women talking about women's issues in a room with no men involved is excluding men from that, and they feel ostracised from whatever the conversation is going on. That, and they don't know; they're not learning anything. Yeah. These men are on the outside; they're not learning anything yeah. to go and take back into the wider industry. Right. They have to every. In every single uh, kind of diverse group of individuals, you must ensure that you've got representatives from outside of that group to ensure the message is conveyed within the broader network. So um, within the the neurodiversity group that I sit within the diversity project, so we champion neurodivergent uh, individuals within financial services, I'm neurotypical. I'm one of the few neurotypical people within that group. But it, I can articulate back to the broader organisation some of the Your issues yeah. that these guys are facing that they don't feel confident enough or empowered enough to talk about. Yeah. If I wasn't sitting in that room, they'd all sit in their room and talk about the issues that they're facing, but nothing would be done about it. Right, exactly. So, yeah. If someone's listening and they feel like they are either neuro... Divergent. Diver- what's, the other, what's your one? What's that? Uh, neurotypical. <laughs> what, what you what's again? Your, what you? <laughs> um, I did a test and I'm between the two, I think. 
they came back and did an online test. You're an unknown commodity. <laughs> yeah, or I just don't answer correctly. Um, out of interest, if somebody is interested to see where they sit on the divergent typical scale, yes. what can they do? There are a whole range of uh, medical tests that you can do, yeah. uh, so either through your GP, mental health service, or online even. Yeah. Um, so you can identify. So if you if you if you feel you are struggling, yeah, with just stuff yeah you know that you think that your peers are coping with whether that's sensory issues the way that you can communicate the yeah. friendships or relationships you have the way that you manage your boss or whatever you think that you are struggling then getting a diagnosis will help you identify something it doesn't help you solve the problem mm-hmm. so it will, it will help you say well okay well i believe belong in that community where i can identify with that yeah but it doesn't help you address kind of some of the broader issues um, and how you can function on a day-to-day life. I yeah. would say speak to somebody who, you know, who sits on the Neurodiversity Committee within the Diversity Project. You can speak to me. There are lots of people out there. There's lots of societies, lots of committees, lots of groups out there now who can help people in that situation. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to set up some kind of beacon of, you know, connection within their business and wanted to know how to go about doing that, they could reach out to you Absolutely. for some advice. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I'm we'll delighted. Stick- Okay, great. We'll put your contact details <laughs> in the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I think we're kind of um, at the end. There's one question I always ask people at the end. Um, it's a bit of a, a key change. What's your relationship with death? Terrified. <laughs> Terrified of death. Every day? Every now uh, and again? <laughs> Every time you go to sleep? Um, I, had a, I had a pretty horrible diagnosis at the end of last year so I know I've got a condition called Lynch syndrome which means that I am more prone than your average bear to get pretty much every form of cancer so I've had to have quite a lot of preventative surgery this year which I've gone through so when you when you're faced with that kind of diagnosis you suddenly look at death straight in the face and go wow okay this might happen sure um and also with a lot of with, with dependents in my family it makes you kind of think right what happens if yes and the what happens if isn't very isn't a great it's not it's not something that I like to think about when I've got children as young as I have um but I think that's the same whether you've got lynch syndrome or any kind of condition anyway sure but it's something that puts into focus your your um priorities in life so I'm terrified about it because I don't want to die I think I've got so much left to live for yeah but actually, sometimes when you have a, something put in front of you and said, okay, there's, there's your mortality right in front of you there, it makes you reprioritise. That's a good the thing, better. right? For the better, yeah. That's really good. That's but a you didn't get that answer, did you? I, I'm happy I got that. <laughs> I either get, um, I don't think about it at all, or I'm scared, Sless, and I don't do anything about it. But I'm loving that yours is the third. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. scared, but I, it's made me push to positive action. Absolutely. And also uh, a position of positivity every day, right? Yes. Just thankful you woke Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Cheers.